Hello and welcome to this podcast from Faber and Faber. My name is George Miller, and our guest today is novelist and essayist Andrew Hagen, the narrator of whose latest novel is a dog. Not just any dog, but Maff the Maltese Terrier, given to Marilyn Monroe by Frank Sinatra in 1960. Maff accompanies Marilyn for the rest of her short life, recording their adventures and reflecting philosophically on the changing world around them. Maff turns out to be a most engaging narrator, well-versed in literature, art and politics, steeped in Enlightenment values and adept with the footnotes, but also, refreshingly, not above trying to bite the fingers of an irritating literary critic at a swanky soiree. A perfect little yapping 20th-century absurdity, Andrew has called him elsewhere. But before we got on to math, I wanted to hear a bit more about Andrew's own canine history. Almost before I remember any humans in our house when growing up, I remember the dogs. There was always some disgruntled and slightly depressed with a little puppy in the corner of the kitchen. So it seemed to look at us as if I understood more about human behaviour and the chaos of human relations than the humans themselves did. I loved our dogs, and they did seem wise to me. I think I thought a special relationship, at least I imagined I had a special relationship with them. The only one was called Lucky, and then there was Whiskey, and then there was Bob. And with all, these, all of these dogs, they uh, seemed to me to be watching us all the time. I grew up in quite a chaotic house, and the dogs seemed to me the arbiters of reasonable behaviour. At least that's the look they had about them. In the novel, Dr. Gorson, um, Marilyn's physician, says they have ears and they have eyes, and that sense that there is this presence observing and listening is, is very strong, isn't it? Freud all, always felt that his favourite dog, Yofi, a great big furry cow of a dog, was his best friend in some respects, and that understood the psychoanalytic project better than his wife did. He had a wife that was totally resistant to his um, studies and to his patients. And I think that was always my feeling, was that a good dog would be understanding about um, human problems and the, the course of therapy, and psychotherapy especially, would be something that the dog would be quite in favour of. Freud used to say that Jofie would come and press its nose up against him when for a few minutes had passed, almost as if to tell him that that was the time that the patient had had their say and it was time to go. An understanding dog was uh, always a lovely notion to me, and I wanted to make Mark in the book like that, a friend to the reader, somebody who would negotiate the world on behalf of the reader. So at, at what point did you become aware of the literary potential of the dog? When, at what point did you think you could actually do something with the dog as the narrator of the novel? In 1999, when I went to the sale at Christie's in New York of Marlon Monroe's personal belongings, that was a famous sale where small items, lipsticks and toddlers and personal books were sold next to the famous dress that she wore while singing Harvey Buffett's President Kennedy at Madison Square Gardens. At that sale, um, I noticed they were selling six little Polaroids of a dog called Mark which I knew about, it was a present given by Frank Sinatra to Marilyn Monroe at Christmas 1960. And that uh, set of Polaroids was sold for $222,000, which seemed to me a signal moment in contemporary art, that these little pictures of a dog, because they were attached to a great famous 20th century icon, could be so valuable. And just as I noticed that, the voice of the dog began to percolate in my head, and I had a little yapping going on, 
that felt a very personal sound. It connected to voices in my childhood and to a kind of comic, absurdist little inquiring voice that had been there in my head for many years. And it formed itself very quickly. It took me 10 years to write the book, but I certainly had the literary character of the dog right from the beginning when I first heard those little perceptions um, coming in my head in the voice of Ma. They were very literary, and I think that was because I always loved talking animals in literature. I loved them in Cervantes and Jonathan Swift and George Orwell and Virginia Woolf. You know, the talking animals are the animals that were given the power of thought and reflection before conversation. They meant such a lot to me, so I think there was just a little forging in my head very early on, and I realized that there was potential here for something quite sparkling if I could get it right. At what point did you realize that, that there was a chance to make an explosive stop, and how, how important was that? Well, I think that's the combination of the vanity of the author meets um, a sort of sensibility where I wanted to drag the business of my own childhood and beginnings into the dog's head, coupled with the fact that there was rumors in Hollywood when I started just searching the book that the dog had actually come from the Sussex farmhouse, lived in by Virginia Woolf's sister, Vanessa Bell, and Duncan Grant, the painters, and that they had got it from Scotland. So that's sort of a chain of thought and association. I mean, we work by implication and association as novelists, very naturally. It doesn't feel like hard work to find these correspondences. They just, um, they're a bit like DNA, they're either there with you or not. In this case, uh, it seems to me, uh, just to me, it's very naturally that Mark uh, was the Scottish story, but I wanted to give him some of those uh, features which were so familiar to me from my first days in life. And, uh, and when, when the reality suggested that that way it had had been the case, then it just was a no-brainer from there on. I just was absolutely determined to have to be Scottish. And you've retained some, some little idiomatic linguistic terms, haven't you? Just like cats and like with fleas and, and giving people their character, which is nice to things embedded in this discourse. Yeah, I mean, it's always been important to me, the language thing. I mean, of course, a great example of talking animals in literature was, of course, my friend of my childhood, uh, friend of ma- many people's childhood in Scotland, and that was Robert Burns. Uh, the great poet Robert Burns, who is, I suppose, the national writer of Scotland, has a wonderful uh, group of poems, uh, the most famous of which is called The Four Dogs, which is a conversation between two dogs in a poem, but discussing the oppressiveness of the local landlord. It's a very political poem, a satire, really, sending up human vanity and human corruption, but in the voices of animals. And that was in my head, and I loved the way in that poem that those dogs spoke so Scottishly about um, the predicament that they found themselves in. Very human concerns voiced in a new way through the tone um, and the language of these animals. Next to, next to them, I could hear a certain um, sort of intellectual inquiry that my dog had in, in my imagining, which was very Scottish, and it was a kind of enlightenment dog, a dog that was taken up with questions of reason and morality and ethics, and all those questions which are primary subjects for philosophy. It's a philosophical dog from the beginning, and I like the idea that uh, Marlon's dog, of all the dogs, should be the one that was so taken up with the big questions of life that she found herself trapped in some of the big questions of life. So, again, it felt very natural to me that the dog should have that as well as um, language. And did it feel like a risk? to you as a professional novelist to write a novel entirely in the voice of a dog? I knew it would be a risk so far as um, it went with people who didn't appreciate that tradition in literature, people who really cared about that um, fantastic history of talking animals that exists in the Russian novel or 
existing um, uh, poetry through the ages would, would, would pick up on it very quickly and see it as being part of that. I mean, a lot of these writers, especially the Russians or George Orwell, for example, who were extremely interested in realism, they were quite purist in literary terms. They believed in the business of the human heart and about societies and how they work. And yet they recognised uh, for seasons, little isolated seasons of their career, that talking animals might, might well body that forth for the reader in a new way. So I feel confident that readers who were alert to that would, um, would take it up immediately and the other readers would come to it uh, in the reading of it. You know, they, just by some process, they would, they would get to like this dog because he's a likeable little thing. He's a creature of great empathy. And I feel that um, that was my understanding. Of course, there will always be them those who feel, you know, that my reputation as a sort of purist literary writer of um, realist fiction, if you like, um, that human beings and their trials and their troubles in their communities in contemporary Britain, they may feel a bit sort of surprised, shocked, or dismayed even. There will always be the possibility that some people just don't like this uh, technique. But, you know, you take that and you move on as a writer, and you don't assume that every book you write is for everybody. And you should never pursue the critic's favour or indeed the reader's favour whilst working on a book. You must obey the potential for originality that exists there, I think. And what math gives you is, is a, a wonderful vantage point, it seems to me, not just a literal vantage point, because you've done an ankle level, so very sensitive to the shoes and the brand of shoes that people wear. But also, because he's, he's a dog, he's an extremely sensitive dog, and he's aware of people's character, how they're developing, particularly the, the character of Marilyn, what she's going through, but no one else, there's no other, other than, other than a missing narrator who would have a very different kind of take on that, could present that. So that there's one point in the book where Frank Sinatra is becoming aggressive, and Marilyn is physically squeezing Matt's ribs, and that's an amazing kind of physical touch, which, you know, is actually registering the emotion in the scene in a way that, that no other narrative voice could do. I think that was uh, such a big purpose for me, such a clear purpose, was to register the journey of Marilyn's consciousness via this dog. She claimed the dog was the best friend she ever had, and the only one that understood her. She said these things, you know, that Mark was non-judgmental and a wonderful empathizer, a companion, something that she never found elsewhere in her life, in her confused experiences, in her chaotic relationships. With men, she, she never found a friend as, as close as much, and he was a comforter as well. And that's it's minor from the guards for an obvious idea that there was this dog who witnessed everything and was the great comforter. And the idea that he may have an intelligence beyond what we would normally accept as being reasonable. Well, that's a, that, that, that's a great bonus to novels to, to be able to imagine that, I think. Readers are probably susceptible, I think, to, to fully imagined things. They'll go with you, by and large, if you do it well enough. You know, I, I trust my readers. They, they want to be enthralled. Their capacity for wonder is always much larger, uh, thank God, than, than you might initially think. And I find it with this novel that readers have really come with me on what is, after all, a journey, a metaphysical journey into the relationship between two creatures, one of them a speaking, reasoning creature, that's the dog I'm talking about, <laughs> and the other one, a woman who was almost silenced by her circumstances, who was undervalued as, as a thinker and as a performer. So, yeah, I was absolutely comfortable with the idea that, um, you know, it was an opportunity to enter into new territory. Marilyn Monroe has 
of course, generated many books and also been quite attracted to novelists, haven't they? They, they have attempted, I suppose, to, to try to get under her skin and explain what kind of woman she was, what was, what was going on there. I think that anybody who's genuinely interested in the 20th century, the second half of the 20th century particularly, couldn't not be interested in a figure like Marilyn Monroe, and equally a figure like Lee Harvey Oswald and John F. Kennedy, other figures from contemporary life which came up too, people who somehow acted as lightning rods for a whole lot of public feeling, given that public feeling and public life has been so much a constituent central part of the late 20th century and early 21st century novel in English, we must be attentive to these people. We now know that 750 books written about her, and as you mentioned, quite a number of them are fictional titles. And that's for a good reason, is that she has come to represent something very essential and very mythic in our culture. This little lost girl who came from a very ordinary background to international fame and into disaster represents something very archetypal in our culture. And we haven't done with her yet, any more than we've done with any of the great mythic Greek figures. She's this testament in the culture of Peter Pan. It just won't go away. And there's been hundreds, perhaps thousands now, of separate translations, adaptations, versions, productions of Peter Pan. And yet, it has such cultural and psychological resonance, that story, that it will always exist so long as human experience exists, I think. And Marilyn's become like that. She's become a mythic archetype. While I was writing this book, I sometimes thought, um, much as Don DeLillo suggested in one of his novels, that perhaps um, there would be departments of Elvis studies at all the universities that people trying to understand the nature of the 20th century popular culture. I wondered if all novelists at some point in their careers wouldn't have to pass through the portals of Marilyn Monroe's story if they were interested in fictionality and the power of invention. Of course we wouldn't, but that was a gag. But I mean, from my point of view, I wanted to pause, given that she had been associated with my own sense of life and growing up, and I'd been interested in it as a child and so on. It seemed to me natural. So I wanted to animate her story in a fresh way. I wanted to ask you about that, and it's a bit difficult question, or a difficult reconstruction, but I, w I wanted to know a bit about how you and Marilyn actually came together. What were the things that composed that imagining of Marilyn? And in some senses, were you sort of contesting or challenging other Marilyns? Because there are so many different Marilyns, aren't there? And, and the Marilyn is, is an aspirational Marilyn. She wants to exist in the realm of ideas and not just be appearance. Absolutely. I mean, I think that one of the genuine motivating factors for me when I set out to write this book, was to rescue this archetype from the busy, rather leaden, hysterical interest in conspiracy theory and murders and um, these sort of disaster, misery memoir type interests in her um, had flooded in and overtaken the subject, I think. And we got away from that sort of optimistic, laughing, brilliant comedian that Marlon also was. She did have a very sad life, and I'm sure conspiracies surrounded them one form or another, but not in the way that people think they've over-imagined them. Um, there was this, this very ambitious woman who just wanted to improve in her life, she wanted to grow as an actress, she wanted to be uh, associated with good ideas and strong performances and, and art. She wanted to live as an artist, and people kept 
taking them back in her box and telling her to eat a cheesecake, dumbbells, and so on. That effort of us to escape from, from all of those definitions, I wanted to take into the body of the book. You know, this is really set in 1962, the last two years of her life, when that effort was the big final push for her. You know, she'd been with Arthur Miller of life, arguably at the time the most famous playwright in America, next to Tennessee Williams. And, you know, that had failed and had bid for a sort of respectability had sort of failed and she was she was still struggling to be the person she wanted to be. That's tension stuff for fiction, you know. Of course, she was born in 1926, so we had been all these years before the novel even starts, and, and I didn't want to go into all that. I didn't want to try and do a panoramic view of this woman, but it was always the dog's point of view, the documentary existence in her life that Christmas, and it's really uh, a first-person narrative very much through the, do- through the dog's eyes, you know. You're right to point out that there has been so much interest in her, and I think for me, I wanted to rescue her in quite a modest way, just to bring her back to her best self. And that's what happens, especially to women who have been written about too much, that they begin to become pure victim or pure dramatic object with the stress on object. And I wanted to um, save her from that a little bit. I think the, the, the phrase of maths in the whole book that I thought was the most poetic and most wonderful was towards the end he says, it is though the world has bleached her with attention, and that seemed to me what math and what you through math were doing to rescue from that. And the bleaching that I imagined was like a sort of oversaturated photograph where the colour had all gone and it was just, it was sort of turning to, to light and no, no definition. Yeah, so I think part, part of the um, issue for math as a narrator is that, that by the end, part of his sadness, part of the heartbreak for the little dog is that he realised that he's probably bleached her too, that she was sort of eminently available for bleaching and that we've all bleached her. That we have no choice. She bleached herself. She made herself so available for the projection of other people's fantasies and ideas about her that she became as blank as a as, as a cinema screen, being wiped out. The dog, as well as the author, that's to say me, probably would take as much responsibility for that as anybody. But there's no reaching the flesh and blood Marilyn anymore. She died, and in some senses was dying long before the event, she lost herself fundamentally and all that need for attention. And perhaps there is a, a, a moral lesson in, in there as well. After all, we live in the age of celebrity where there are children now presenting themselves, making themselves available, as I've said, for bleaching and for waiting out. We consider that to be a sort of goal. Well, it was a, it was a dark destination for Marley. These are questions that you you've thought about before in fiction and personality it's obviously something that you are fascinated by and, and returned to. Idealism and the notion of self-invention has been in my work since the beginning. The idea of lostness is right there in my first book, The Missing. The idea that you can lose yourself in the bid to become something else that can be forced into another place by terrible circumstances. These have always moved me. Uh, I think the kind of keynote feelings of Certainly of my period, I'm over 40 now, and I started writing about these subjects in my mid-twenties. Um, but as compelling to me now as they were then, 20 years into a career, I still feel as if I'm beginning in many ways, and just setting out my, my stall. But these, I can see now, when I look at those individual discrete books, that there's a consistency between them. Not that I intended it that way or anything, but 
but they're all interested in erasure and the way that life can bug people out. And the people who part of the human creativity that came together, whether it be a socialist house builder, such as the man dying in 1804 and our fathers, or the little girl in personality who's trying to get off that island and get into London weekend television to become a star, or whether it's the man who's never faced up to the positive of the region's face can be near me, or now, uh, this latest to the life of the things of Mark the Dog, where we have a little dog witnessing the disappearance of a brilliant woman in front of his eyes, and he's trying and pointing, he's flampering after her, trying to make her persist to, to keep her alive. Tell me about creating Frank Knight on the page, because it's been crackled with menace when he's on, and I really, it's like, you know, it's like when the Yaggle comes on, you've got to sit up and think, you know, what's, what's going to happen next? It's such a, such a strong force. So, so tell me how you, how, you, how you made him come alive. Poor Frank. You know, uh, I had to um, study him long and hard, and I did. And of course, he's a wonderful artist, and he's a great a favorite of all of us, I think, as a singer. But he was, in some sense, a terrible man. And all accounts tally on that issue, not just the scholarly ones, but I mean, even the reasonable individuals to describe him say that he was hot headed and quite mad, and especially mad around women. The thing that I noticed most in my research was that. His vanity was enormous and would cause him to go into the most terrible flights of anger. A kind of psychotic, sociopathic instinct was there in Sinatra. Given that he had never really appeared in fiction properly before, I felt that it's interesting when you say Iago. To me, he was a sort of Iago figure, but there was medicine spread right through him, like a stick of Blackpool rock or New Jersey rock, as it might be in his case. But he was menacing in vain through the terrible things that can come together and cause explosions. And that he really undervalued Marlon and certainly undervalued the dog that he'd given her. And so it was a great opportunity really to offer a portrait of him consistently through the book that he would be a villainous person. He would threaten people with violence as soon as look at them. And so that's who that's who he seemed to me in the research and I tried to honour the truth of it as far as I could in the book. And that must get to the revenge and I should that would be he um, invokes John Locke and, and says basically it's not a man without God, it's kind of like a pure expression of will, and that's yeah. what it is, it's just a pure expression of some. I mean, I love the idea that, that Mark could have that sort of perception, you know, that, because there's got to be some entity in the world that does, you know, that brings to the reader the possibility that this dog knows from his own intellectual journeys and experience that Locke would have known how to describe facts and after a person without God, a person purely riding on free will, that's the, as we always used to say in the rap pack days, you know, it's Frank's world, we just live in it, <laughs> you know, and I, I think that Mark the Dog sees that and, and almost feels sorry for him that he has no balance in his life at all, he's just a tyrant, it's possible to feel sorry for tyrants than, than Mark Knight. But at the same time, as, as you also mentioned, um, a lot of the um, impetus for these things was comedy. You know, there was the innate comedy and all of that. I wanted the book to read like a bedroom fast, you know, in some ways, like one of those Hollywood bedroom comedies that films be starring Doris Day. Because it's not just a tyrant, he's a petty tyrant, and he's an impotent tyrant, and he's a tyrant raging about, about tiny, tiny small All three things, yeah, I mean, pettiness is all through him. He's arguing about silly things, you know, I mean, his big explosion in the book where he finally loses it completely. Uh, his house at Palm Springs is to do with the fact that Ken the Kennedys decided to sleep overnight 
had been closely praised rather than his, and he felt horrified to receive the, the helicopter from Hannesport bearing the young Kennedys. He was born in that way and also petty in that way. He believed in the politics, he believed in the politics of the Kennedys, he sang the campaign. So why did it matter to him? Well, he said, actually, if he was properly political and properly interested in them, he probably have understood that the rumours of mafia connections around Sinatra wouldn't have been good for them. He wasn't political in that way. He wasn't like Peter Mandelson. He would have understood that, of course, they should go elsewhere because the press would flop to have been Crosby. So you know, it, was, it was nice to be able to manipulate all that truth and to put it in its proper place because I feel that reality without the imagination is nothing really. Well, I, I wanted to end on humour because there were, there were laugh out loud moments in this book right? when, when you had a spider rolling his eight eyes that made me laugh out. And so, you know, having allowed yourself the artistic license of having a talking dog, you decided to go way beyond that. So you've got talking animals of all sorts, and they've all got their own personalities and their take on the, the human beings. Yeah, that came early actually uh, in the draft of the where I realised that that ladybug crawling across the table in the kitchen at Charleston, where Mark begins his life, also has feet. It seemed to me consistent with the, um, the comedy and the fun of the book that all the animals would speak and they would speak with a greater articulacy and self knowledge than any of the humans. When we put Frank Sinatra next to a group of Russian bed bugs at the Columbia Presbyterian Hospital in New York, you know you're in for a bit of a giggle. Of course, these Russian bed bugs are full of Dostoevsky and a sense of life's ruination and uselessness. And there's Frank, you know, sort of self defeatingly shouting and bawling at everybody. You know, that's, that's what fiction can do. You know, if you're going to be in the business of writing novels, then and from time to time, and uh, this will probably be a singular outing for me. I don't suppose I'll be writing many more books like Mark the Dog, but from time to time, a novelist can marry reality to the really furthest extremes of the imagination and, and bring their style forward in that way. That's what we all want to do. I think it was Nabokov once said that every book a writer produced is another chapter in the history of their style. Andrew O'Hagan. The Life and Opinions of Math the Dog and of his friend Marilyn Monroe is out now in paperback. That's all for this edition of the Faber podcast, but you can find out more about the book by going to faber.co.uk. And you can also hear Andrew reading extracts from the novel there. I hope you'll join me again soon for another Faber podcast, and until then, thank you very much for listening, and goodbye.